Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Case, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. This episode is very, very special. We're going to be talking about deep, fa- deep fakes and an epistemic uh, apocalypse that could be coming. You know, whether or not we should be worried that deep fakes will destroy our epistemology, destroy our knowledge. Can we ever know anything again with these deep fakes? Uh, we've all seen the Tom Cruise one. So will that become our whole life? That's what we're going to be talking about today. I have with me Joshua Habgood Coot, and he is a research fellow at the University of Leeds. He's an epistemologist, and uh, I would call him a techno philosopher. I'll see if, if he likes that term or not. But I'm really excited to be doing some deep epistemology on a very, very relevant topic. This is like everything that I strive for. Really, really cool stuff. So make sure you watch the whole video so you can become an expert on deep fakes and epistemology and whether or not you should be worried and how how worried you should be about deep fake technology. Before we jump in, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen over on Patreon and YouTube members. If you guys like this show, then the best way to support it would be to become a patron or a YouTube member. There are different levels that you can support at with different uh, things that you get at each level. I always forget what to call those perks, benefits, whatever. Um, so yeah, if you guys like this, if you want to see me continue to bring experts on to, to share and school us on their work. If you want to see me be able to feed my dogs and keep the lights on around here, please consider becoming a Patreon patron or YouTube member. You can find the links in the description wherever you're getting this podcast at. There's also a bunch of merch. You can find us uh, on Facebook at Parker's Pensies Ponciers. There's a whole lot. I could spend the rest of the time just commodifying myself, but I better not. Let's bring in Josh and let's talk about deep fakes and the epistemic apocalypse. Josh, thanks so much Hi, for coming on. This is awesome. I'm, I'm so excited to talk with you. Um, as we get in, uh, I thought it'd be kind of fun to introduce you to my audience. You, in your paper and uh, in the video you sent me, describe yourself as an epistemologist. Um, did you do your, your doctoral work on epistemology? Yeah, a slightly different bit of epistemology. So I am um, my PhD at the University of St. Andrews. And the University of Stirling, it's a confusing double program. Mm. Uh, and then I was working on practical knowledge. Um, so what it is to know how to do something, whether that's a kind of theoretical knowledge or some other kind of knowledge. I've then kind of like kind of taken a meandering route through thinking about collective inquiry and inquiry mm. in general before thinking about like the ways in which like technological systems are connected to our collective inquiry. And I guess that's the bit of my research that this paper is like a part of yeah that's awesome so um i don't know if you guys probably call them uh thesis a thesis over there but uh, like your dissertation yeah. what, what was that what was the topic of that yeah so it was on it was on practical knowledge um so it was about like yeah what it is what it is to know how to do something um and i kind of argued for there was two kinds of views in that debate there's like an intellectualist view that says that knowing how to do something is having some normal theoretical knowledge about the question of how to do it. Yeah. And then there's a anti-intellectualist view that uh, mm. knowing how to do something is some kind of ability to do that thing. Yeah. So I argue for a kind of compromise position where knowing how to do something is an ability and it also relates to the question of how to do something, but it's an ability to generate answers to mm. the question of how to do something 
on the fly as you're doing something. Oh, it's so cool. Uh, you have to come back on and talk to me about that because that stuff's so fun. I've been I've been thinking a lot about concepts and whether or not you you uh, know how knowledge is what you know I call it whatever. But yeah, whether or not a concept is generated or needs to be there in order to. So I, I like the intersection of 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 that, and I don't want to be an intellectualist because I think it's kind of it seems a little bit naive. It seems like a little bit you know old schooly. Um, but I know there's probably some really good intellectualists out there. Uh, so it, it, the way you set it up sounds awesome. You know, you got the two sides and you you find the middle and that sounds really cool. Yeah. And there's a bunch of connections to philosophy of technology as well, right? So like the interesting bits of like human practical knowledge that are like involved and necessary for like technological systems to keep going, like mm -hmm. some really interesting stuff like the ethics of work and the idea that the use of technology at work de-skills people mm. um, yeah. and leads to situations where people are kind of forced a whole position for situations where they can't develop practical knowledge. Yeah. So I've been thinking a bit about that and the connection between that and like platform work of the kind that like is hidden behind content moderation and like Amazon Mechanical Turk. Oh, so good. Yeah, yeah. Mechanical Turk stuff so fascinating. I, I wonder yeah, about yeah, yeah. I wonder about um it's it's so crazy to think the mechanical mechanical Turk program is like a bunch of humans and they're like outmoding themselves. Like it's really, really like this hive mind type thing is like making itself uh, not useful Possibly. anymore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. itself. Yeah, I, I also think... sound like scary. Like, yeah, like all kind of like overblown. Like, it's been interesting to like watch um, recaptures, right? Those little tests you have to do the like, uh, am I a human test? Yeah, because a lot of that data isn't just used to like verify whether people are human. It's also then used as like training data. Right. for machine learning systems. Yeah. <laughs> and you might notice that the questions have got harder and harder over time. Mm -hmm. And in part, that's because like the data that's generated by recaptures like in the 2000s or 2010s has been fed into machine learning systems. So machine learning systems can pass the like simpler versions of the, the kind of Turing test that was yeah. um, going on there. Um, so you have to kind of come up with harder ones where you're like telling apart different kinds of animals or something. Yeah. It's so it's so crazy because now once I've uh, I've read a little bit on computer vision, like oh okay, mm. so I see that I'm part of this giant experiment, but I also want to get onto this website. So dang it, and you like click the mm -hmm. button anyways. Yeah, yeah, and th and there's an interesting moment of like, and I think this is kind of underdone, like an interesting moment of like labor solidarity mm. between people who are annoyed at recaptures and the folk sometimes in the US, sometimes in like South Asia, in like East Asia who are working in call centers doing platform work, who are yeah. doing some stuff that's like equivalent to those tests all day long. Yeah. And like that's the character of their working lives. Yeah. Um, so I think like the, the, the feeling of annoyance that recaptures like is a kind of route into solidarity with platform workers. Wow. Yeah, I didn't think about that. That's cool. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, that, that know-how and stuff is so fascinating, too, when it comes to thinking about at least how people speak of like uh, a chess robot, uh, you know, a chess algorithm. And it's like, it obviously knows how to play chess. And here, at least in the States, a lot of the AI theorists inherited the the great American philosophy of pragmatism, unfortunately. And they're like, look, if it can make the move, then it knows how to do it. And you're like, well, why is that the condition for knowledge? I, but but is it? You know, and so all that to yeah. say, I'm really fascinated by, by, uh, by your work there. So you got to come back on and talk about that. Great. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd like yeah. there's loads of there's loads of interesting stuff to chat. So good. Yeah. Well, um, so I, I already told the audience that we're going to be talking about uh, deep fakes, and I actually think this is really really fascinating. Uh, just a brief note, real quick, that I think this is the type of uh, public facing philosophy that is uh, is done really well. I see a lot of my friends, and I love I love them, but a lot of my philosopher friends are saying, I want a public facing philosophy and they take their philosophy that is, um, that the public is not very interested in and they try to just shoehorn that in. How can I make it more, um, understandable? And it's like, well, you can make it more understandable by touching on something that the public already is really fascinated by and showing how your work connects to that. And I think this is right in the sweet spot. Deep fakes are all over the place. And it's like, well, Hey, do you want to talk about epistemology? No. Uh, do you want to talk about how you can know whether or not that's Tom Cruise? And they're like, yeah, I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, here we go. You know, and now we're in deep and, and now they're fascinated. So they'll, they'll put up with the, the terminology because their, their interest is peaked. Yeah, totally. And I think there's an, so I've, I've been doing like some kind of public philosophy stuff, like since I guess about 2016, 2017. And one thing I've kind of learned in that is that like the setup of questions at the beginning of bits of public philosophy is really, really, really important. Mm-hmm. So like, it's really tempting for everyone to start being like, this is my research. I need to explain and argue why that's like relevant or important. Yeah. And like, sometimes that's, that's good. And you see cool stuff, but like, it's in a way easier if you get places where people already have questions and like worries that are philosophical worries or like can be reframed as or touch on philosophical mm-hmm. worries. And then like give them tools to, to think about those things. I think that's yeah. like both more effective and like less like let me come from the ivory tower with these like, uh, interesting like concepts is more like yeah the stuff like the stuff i can like chat to my pals about when we're like out running yes and not feel like i'm going into like a lecturing mode so good i love that it, for, for me it always happens after uh after jujitsu class where, where people mm-hmm. are like so so what are you working on and, and i'll you know tell them something goofy and i'll be like that's pretty fascinating and so a perfect a perfect one i think for this conversation would be um, how do how do recordings give us knowledge? How do photos, drawings, yeah. paintings give us knowledge? Like, I, and I think each one of those is, is a little bit different. You look at a painting of my grandmother, and I'm like, did my grandmother have blonde hair? She she in the painting she does, and that might give me different knowledge than a drawing of her or a, a photo of her or a recording of her. So, yeah, how how do we get how do we gain knowledge from uh, these types of things? I don't even I don't are they are they artifacts? I'm not even really sure how to categorize all of these. Yeah, I guess insofar as drawings and paintings and photographs and videos 
are all objects designed with a kind of function uh, mm -hmm. to represent some bit of the world. They're kind of, and they're like the products of um, human skill. <laughs> yeah. Then, yeah, we can think about them all as, as different kinds of artifacts. Okay. Yeah, so we should like step back a second to to see why people interested in deepfakes have been so worried about the like epistemology of um, drawings and photographs. So there's an idea that um, video evidence and kind of more generally evidence from recordings is kind of special. Mm. So when you see a recording, if folk are watching on like uh, YouTube or listening to this podcast, like they're listening to or watching a recording mm. and um, there's a kind of directness to that kind of evidence. So if you like see a photograph, some people have thought that you can like literally see the objects represented in the photograph. It's not that you're looking that's like uh, a photograph, say, of your yeah. grandmother, but you're looking at your grandmother. Um, so recordings are kind of special, and that specialness is to be distinguished from like the relative less specialness of like hand-drawn pictures or like if you think about like a, a cartoon that's been made by like people drawing like frame on frame. And there's some kind of diagnostics of these differences right so if you look at a drawing of your grandmother the person drawing might have like wanted to make her look more beautiful or yeah. to like change the color of her hair or might have been malicious and made her like like a um what do you do like those cartoonists you see in like public squares caricature yeah yeah characterists yeah 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 yeah, yeah. um so they can introduce uh details that aren't there and like all of the details in the drawing are things which like the the drawer better have had like knowledge of at some point because they reproduced them and that's mm. very different from a photograph right so supposedly <laughs> it's not possible or at least difficult to introduce details into a photograph just because you want to represent them and the photographer can discover things in her photograph right so if like a cat has come in and photobombed the photograph she might not have noticed that until she gets the uh, negatives Hmm. developed eventually um so recordings are special drawings and like cartoons are like less special um how's that kind of to be made sense of in terms of like different sources of knowledge well a lot of people have thought following and um, dan kevin and taylor that we should think that the knowledge we get from recordings is a kind of perceptual knowledge we're like mm -hmm. literally seeing the objects represented whereas knowledge from like uh, drawings broadly, it should be thought of as a kind of knowledge from testimony where we have yeah. to rely on the person who's produced the drawing and on their beliefs about what's in the drawing. Right? It's more like someone telling you something than like seeing the thing with your own eyes. Mm. Man, that's really fascinating for thinking about the different art forms of photography versus drawing. Mm -hmm. And that might even be like a way to parse those or or might you know raise a bunch of hackles in in, in people uh, because one is more constructive than the other. But depending on the debate, it's like, well, this angle doesn't actually represent this waterfall at all. If you went and looked at the waterfall, you wouldn't see this yeah. at all. It's from one limited perspective, and you know, then you have to bring in all the different uh, tools, you know, the lenses and all that stuff too. And 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 is that really a construction or not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a, there's a really interesting question in the history of photography about how we should think about photography. Mm. And there's a kind of like a little bit of a naive history that's like 
people taking photographs have always wanted to represent the world like uh better and better and better yeah um so like think about street photography and like portrait photography where it's like really trying to capture the nature of the like um person or the like uh objects being represented and that's got better and better over time as the technology's got better mm-hmm. um and it turns out that's just not the right there's not like a sort of complete history of photography there's a really interesting kind of like dialectic between two at least two styles of photography one that's really interested in the uh expressive possibilities of photography uh and another that's interested in like it's called like straight photography sometimes that's really interested in like capturing the reality of photography so like mm-hmm. um dominic lopez has this really interesting book called the four arts of photography um where he talks about like these different styles of photography being connected to like different views of the kind of like um philosophy and aesthetics and the epistemology of Mm. photography and so i think all the way all the way back through the history of photography you see these kind of two two different streams going on one that's really interested in like how can i um use the um set up creatively to create things which i couldn't with a brush or with a pencil and another that's really interested in like yeah i've got to make some and like but like cutting and pasting different parts of a photograph together. And another that's right. really interested in, I'm not going to interact in the development process at all. This is like uh, minimal hands-on from the person. It's just like pressing a button and then yeah. the photograph is taken. That's so fascinating. When it comes to, um, maybe maybe this is a higher level or, or it depends on how you think, I guess, deeper in or higher level. When it comes to perceptual knowledge and testimony, um. I work, I work, I do work in Christian philosophy. So I know like from, from this side of things, people are always like bolstering, uh, testimony because they want to talk about, you know, the, the word of God or, or the, the, mm-hmm. uh, reliability of testimony, uh, in, in the case of Christ and the resurrection. But I'm wondering in, in epistemology generally is perceptual knowledge on, on better standing, uh, than testimonial knowledge or does it always depend? So. I guess it depends, right? So, spoken like a, a might, true philosopher, yeah. Yeah, it, it's kind of tricky. So, I think sometimes people want to say like perceptual knowledge is better um, because you're just relying on yourself and like um, kind of this kind of thought that's tied into like um, all epistemology is built as a response to some kind of skeptical argument and mm. perceptual knowledge is like easier to establish as a source of knowledge and testimony. Right. Um, I'm not kind of sure that that's right. Or you need to think that to think that, um, perception and testimony are different. So I guess the way I've thought about it is that the difference is that testimonial knowledge is interpersonal knowledge in oh. that, like the source of your knowledge, like really relies on another person like you're not just relying on your own capacities but there's some kind of like interpersonal dependence in that kind of case um whereas in the case of perceptual knowledge there's no interpersonal dependence going on you're just relying on your own capacities um so even if you don't think that like interpersonal knowledge or knowledge that requires dependence on a particular other person is like worse you might think that there are certain kinds of things which interpersonal sources of knowledge can't do yeah and one of those so regina rinney has argued that um one thing video evidence does is it provides a backstop to our testimonial practices because like 
if there's some question about like whether someone's which of two people who are in a disagreement is telling the truth you can go and like look at an evidence from recording like go and like find a video of the events in question and that's kind of a final uh, like <laughs> source of evidence about that question yeah. um and it can only play that role if evidence and videos is not itself interpersonal because then we'd like need some other source of non-interpersonal knowledge yeah. to be the kind of like final court of arbitration but that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that it's like better or worse it's just there's a special role yeah. played by um yeah perceptual knowledge through a through a recording i the backstop uh is it rinny rinny i don't know how to say her last name yeah virginia rinny yeah rinny okay uh, i never said it out loud before i the backstop uh understanding does seem like a a, a kind of trump card right where it's like well yeah just, yeah, yeah. just pull, out, pull out the pull out the video evidence and if um oh, i don't want to jump the gun on deepfakes too much but if someone had um if someone had enhanced the video in order to see it more clearly does that then move it from perceptual to testimonial yeah so really difficult set of questions <laughs> so where are we gonna draw the line between kind of like pure or like just simple evidence from recordings and like something which has had like some kind of change in it which might have been initiated by um someone thinking that like we need to make a change in order to represent the world better mm -hmm. um this is just very difficult to make sense of so if we come back to the case of because I, I know more i know more about photographs than i do about like Okay. videos uh you might think like okay so like maybe digital photography is a bit funky because like you have to set up the like um way the program that's processing the information that's coming in from the lens into some kind of digital information and the way it's being represented on the back of the camera and then on a, in a jpeg or whatever maybe even if you think about like film photography where you've got like a mechanical sense of light coming in being caught in the, in the film on the back of the camera and then that being um developed using like chemicals mm -hmm. there's a huge number of choices that are made in how you develop that film mm. um slight sidebar that like comes back again to the point um it turns out that like from well actually from any time before the 1970s the way that chemicals were used in film developing was set up to in a way like preferentially represent people with like uh lighter skin huh. so often people with like darker skin um would just like not show up on photographs or would show up as like shadows mm -hmm. uh, also people from like east asia would show up as like a funky color like not the color that their skin would appear like in yeah. in daylight to a human eye um and that was done because the kind of sample cards that were used to um set up the film development process only had um like white faces on them and that was yeah. the like kind of sample that you would set up as the kind of neutral face to be um uh checked in on so lorna roth has done really excellent work like uncovering the history of these shirley cards and the role they played and like making sure that um the way film was developed was great for representing people with light skin and worked terribly for people with uh non-white skin i actually missed the name who, so, who is the, who is the academic it's lorna roth Oh, no. uh, okay. I think a journalism professor in somewhere in Canada. 
Um, uh, so, if that's right, <laughs> and, and it is, I'd like just the history of film photography, then yeah. it's really hard to make sense of there being like any kind of just like neutral process, uh, which no human has got involved in. Yeah. Um, and then if you look into like, the way digital photography works at the moment, there's all kinds of like funky little bits where a machine learning system is used to um, kind of fill in or to change a bit of a digital photograph. There's a recent story where um, I think it was a, I can't remember what the brand of the, the phone was, but they had they advertised themselves as having great like night vision photography. And mm. the idea was you could take like great pictures of the moon. And this was like shown in adverts. Oh yeah. Transpired that what was going on was in every photograph, they were like copying and pasting the same yeah. stock image of the moon. Yeah. Um, and then it's like, okay, um, you, sh you shouldn't have been advertising it like that. But like, um, also it reveals something about the choices which are made in, uh, yeah, any any kind of recording um, yeah. device. So like, we don't need to think that like, so some people do think that there's no such thing as like a kind of pure or neutral um, setup of a recording technology where no one's like, involved in it but they do they do seem to be like a whole spectrum of cases where there's like more or less human okay. involvement and there's not like a clear line between like doctored recordings where someone's uh, maliciously changed something in order to misrepresent reality and like the, the kind of pure things where um reality is being represented like accurately mm -hmm. and actually there's lots of cases where <laughs> uh, photographs were changed and doctored in order to represent reality better right um so I guess that kind of how it turns up in the um, taking photographs of the moon case. But in the history of photography, there's all these kind of weird cases where for a while it wasn't possible to take pictures of um, the sky and a landscape in at the same time. So what mm. people did was they cut and pasted. So they took oh. a photograph of a landscape, the sky would be like whited out. And then they copy and paste often the same sky again and again um, into the photograph. So you could see the whole of a scene uh, mm. rather than seeing it misrepresented by what was not a great like photographic technology at the time yeah so that's so fascinating so um getting your this this may be tricky but getting your own intuitions your own your own ideas here do you do you think that do pictures give us perceptual knowledge yeah so this is a good question so let's like take a step back and think about the role this is playing in the initial question. The initial question we were thinking about is like, how worried should we be about deepfakes? Yeah. And one thing the philosophers have done is say, yes, we should be worried about deepfakes. Um, we should be worried about them because they're going to transform the kind of knowledge we can get from videos. One way of making sense of that is videos used to provide us with perceptual knowledge, but deepfakes raise this possibility. Maybe the photograph or the video was um, produced by fancy machine learning technology and someone not wanting to represent the world rightly, accurately. And so if that's right, then maybe we always need to trust, when it's when a possibility, we always need to trust someone who's showing us a photograph or producing a photograph not to have done that kind of like doctoring. Yeah. If that's happened, then videos are no longer going to be a kind of pure perceptual knowledge, but they're going to be a kind of testimonial knowledge. Mm -hmm. So there's two ways out you can take here. So one is to say, yeah, like deepfakes would transform um, videos from perception to testimonial knowledge, but that's not the end of the world. Maybe testimonial knowledge is just like uh, fine. Yeah. Um, 
and like some of the people in literature have done that. And um, my my kind of line on this is slightly different. So I, I don't think it's right to think that video evidence and evidence from recordings is um, a non-interpersonal form of knowledge. I don't think it's a kind of perceptual knowledge. Mm-hmm. I think what's going on is that recording devices, so like the physical cameras or like the um, the phone or whatever that you're using to take video, um, that's an artifact. That's an object that's being produced in order to represent the world accurately. And I think the right view about knowledge from artifacts in general, so like not only cameras, but thermometers, watches, all of the things we use to like keep track of the world is that they involve reliance on a whole group of people. Mm. Okay. So you've got to rely on the um, designer of the thermometer. You've got to rely on the owner to kind of have checked up on it. Maybe you've changed the battery if it requires a battery, Yeah. Uh, like the mechanical, whatever it needs to go into, like be repaired every now and again. Um, and that doesn't feel like there's a kind of relying on one person in that case. And that's because you're not relying on one person. You're relying on a whole social practice around the production, maintenance and use of different kinds of artifacts to have to have done their job right. And mm. um, so I think we can just extend that view across to the case of knowledge from video. And um, so when we see some events being represented in a video and then form a belief about what's happened in uh, the place and time being represented. We're not relying on one person, sure, but we're relying on all of the people who were involved in production, processing of the video, its dissemination, um, to have like lived up to the social norms of yeah. that practice. Um, so if that's the view of knowledge from videos, then the fact that like people can uh, misrepresent reality in videos in this particular way by making deepfakes is a, is a worry. If people are doing that, then the norms aren't being lived up to of the relevant social practice. But it's not like a complete disaster. It's not like one type of knowledge has transformed into another. Uh, it's that the amount of knowledge produced by the social practice has like gone down Yeah. in a similar way to if it turned out that like all documentary producers, like video documentaries, um, had been doing really misleading editing or something like that. And yeah. we had a whole scandal about like editing in people in a really misleading way to make it look like they had said stuff they hadn't. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's really helpful. So you're pushing it back to the social norms and mm. I, I wonder, are there, are there more, re- more reliable, more trustworthy social norms? Do they do social norms? Um, does the evidence produced by social norms, I guess it's hard, having a hard time saying or thinking what i'm saying like if there's a whole list of social norms are some more reliable or more trustworthy Mm -hmm. than than others yeah 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 yeah. right totally um definitely yes and we've got to be like realistic (laughs) so it's tempting to have a kind of like nostalgia for the journalistic practices of i don't know the 1990s or 1980s or 1970s right that's part of a more general weird thing about our discourse about the media where it's like we've entered this new post-truth age everything's gone terrible we need to wind things back to the golden age of journalism or whatever yeah and so there's never been a golden age of journalism journalistic norms are never perfect um but there's obviously like better and worse norms about like the production dissemination of photographs and videos so one of the things i've tried to do in the paper is like 
look back on some of the interesting bits of history um, to kind of pull out some of the um, places where those norms are being developed or places where, um, yeah, people were like systematically breaking the norms. Mm -hmm. um, so one, one example I got really into is the historian Andy Tucher um, has a really great book called Not Exactly Lying and um, talks about the use of photographs in the US kind of in the 1890s through to the early um, 1900s. And um, it turns out that people were systematically like editing by hand the photographs that were printed in the newspaper. I couldn't uh, believe that like, when when I saw yeah. when I saw your your uh, your the sources you used or, or the uh, the examples, it was I was like blown away. They were taking pictures of the an empty uh, place in the city, and then they would you know doctor in people or that New York Evening Graphic, which was unreal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so there's loads, there's loads of different examples, but like this is this is like to the extent that like if you picked up so the New York Evening Graphic is like totally like in the UK be like it would be a tabloid. It's like yellow press is not a good newspaper, yeah. um, but like even respectable newspapers, I think there's evidence that like pretty much every single photograph was doctored hmm. in those papers, and it wasn't like systematically doctored. So it was like misrepresenting how people looked or what happened right but it was just changed to make it like look better or to like um sometimes in order to to tell a story to show something that you couldn't show because like the photographer had turned up late or like the story mm. like needed to be produced in a different place yeah so so when i was looking at the examples that you gave in your paper and in the the video that you sent me uh, i i couldn't believe the i couldn't believe the examples like it, they go back way far they go back into like the earth at the turn of the century and people are uh they're making there's this thing called the new york evening graphic which would make people called it the the evening pornographic because they would make like salacious uh pictures and they would yeah, i don't yeah. know if it's like pastiche or what they were doing to to make those happen but this is like a long thing that's been going on of, of doctored and and doctoring for bad reasons and for good reasons it seems like yeah totally right so there are like these really bad like <laughs> baggies but like newspapers that like no one was really trusting like no one thought that these composographs were like real they're obviously not real they've got like little captions in speech bubbles and um, but it okay. turns out like even quite reputable newspapers uh the people in them were doctoring photographs and doctoring them to like represent reality accurately so sometimes like a photographer couldn't show up to a fire or something like that so they'd go and like take a picture of the ruins and then like something like painting the like fire burning up from the building or whatever mm. and and it's maybe like there's a pretty good case that like every photograph that was printed in a u.s newspaper around that time was doctored in some way wow and so right so the question is like are there better and worse social practices this looks like a really bad one this does yeah. not look like uh like well set up practice where you can trust people to be representing um reality Things got better when, as Andy Teacher argues, like faking, the term faking shifted from like a like acceptable technique. The um, photographers and also writers, it turns out, written faking was quite common, uh, mm. was used to like a term of criticism. And there was like a social norm against faking. And um, so in a way, I kind of want to take that history and pull that into the present. So to suggest that like deep fakes are, are a problem are a thing to be worried about but they're not like a catastrophe they're not like 
uh, a harbinger of an epistemic apocalypse or an infocalypse or whatever like yeah. fancy new term you like. The problem is around like the negotiation and implementation of the social norms around journalistic photography, right? So it's like, here's a thing which like is not going to be useful for us producing knowledge about the world and um, systematically using deepfakes to represent things that don't happen. How are we going to deal with that like social problem rather yeah. than like, here's this new kind of technology that's going to disrupt our social practices and like lead us into some like, yeah, dystopian situation. I, I love that. I love it. It seems really clear headed and it, it, it kind of rises, it, it rises above again, it rises above or goes underneath. I, I, I'm not sure which way, but it, it takes a step back from all the mania of the modern tech, uh, hysteria or mania. Like it, it's going back and saying, yeah, this yeah. is still a social problem. So we're going to need to have social, social solutions, which I want to talk about just to, to close the loop on the, uh, distinction between, perceptual and testimony knowledge when it refers or when it comes to photography um you said it's it's like knowledge um from artifacts is that a subclass of testimony or is it a new uh category in it in its own right yeah so details are going to really matter here um so i'm pulling on some work of um sandy goldberg's uh, oh, awesome i love he, sandy yeah and his great stuff is great like often you're like Oh, I've got some tricky problem to think about and the solution is to go and find a paper of Sandy's where he's like theorized so the like, more general thing. And that's what I'm kind of doing here. Like Sandy's got a couple of papers picking up on some work of Anna Sosa, I think, on the difference between knowledge from instruments and knowledge from testimony. And mm -hmm. that's kind of meant to be a way of understanding the distinctiveness of knowledge from testimony. Mm -hmm. And here the thought is like knowledge from artifacts or from instruments involves diffuse social reliance on a whole group of people, whereas knowledge from testimony involves just reliance on one person. But actually, I'm just thinking of other bits of Sandy's work where he's argued that um, there is also this kind of diffuse social reliance in the way we form knowledge based on other people's beliefs. So he's got a really great um, paper on uh, reasoning of the form. If that were true, I would have heard about it by now. Ah. And his account of that kind of reasoning depends on having a story about like diffuse social reliance on a whole group of people. So like you have to rely on like all of the sources of like information, which might be newspapers, but might not be, they might be your friends or whatever to give you reliable information in a kind of reasonable time frame about some factual question. So like yeah. <laughs> all of my friends are having babies at the moment. So I might like reason like, well, if like blonde had had a baby, then I would know about it by now. And if, when I'm relying on that kind of reasoning, I'm not relying on blah to tell me or like any of my other friends yeah. to tell me when the baby is born, but on kind of all of them and on just having like a social practice around the like dissemination around the arrival of babies. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. yeah. So the thought is like, maybe there's a difference between like simple cases of testimony and like these cases of knowledge from artifacts, but actually there are lots of cases where we do rely on bigger social practices um, in our kind of like testimonial uh, like reliance as well. That makes sense. And that that brings in like the Facebook algorithm, which prioritizes uh, congratulate, congratulatory posts, uh, like they'll, right. they'll push those out if you graduated or if you're having a baby. It's like they're, they're supposed to be pushing those out to people more often. And 
and then that you get back into the instrument stuff too. Our modern times are so yeah. goofy. And I guess one of yeah, your points yeah, is yeah. that it's not just our modern times, right? It's always been this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, so people like really get on them. Um, you have one thing to think that like, oh, look, internet writing and the ways that we form like uh, knowledge based on like social media posts is really special. And then it turns out if you go into the like, 19th and early 20th century people were sending them like one another postcards uh like four times a day and there's this wow. whole practice around like informal writing of postcards that would be like uh really quick have all these like really informal kinds of writing so huh. the uh linguist Gretchen McCulloch has all this interesting stuff about like smileys and like different kinds of like contractions and things that people thought were like special about internet writing mm -hmm. like kind of syntactic and like um grammar features it turns out they're like not special features of internet writing they're special features of informal written communication ah. and you can find examples in like uh photographs and sorry not photographs in um people sending one another postcards yeah uh, like 50 100 years ago wow. uh, and like similarly that could be like an interesting model to be thinking about social media on right to think about people sending one another postcards um four or five times a day yeah. uh, where information would get around really quickly um in a written form wow yeah that's that's super cool now I'm, now i'm remembering those uh those tube systems where you put a note in there and you voom, and then shoot up yeah yeah, yeah 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 i forgot all yeah, about we this. still had them i work, used to work in a supermarket when i was a teenager and in my undergrads and you still use those systems to get the money around you'd have oh, okay. tubes that would pull when you were kind of cashing up at the end of a shift you, <laughs> take a little um plastic tube and you yeah. put all the notes into it and then it would shoot up and go to the back room office where, that's super um, cool yeah i guess they they have them at the bank now that i think about it too yeah if you're, if you're in the drive-thru line oh that's mm -hmm. cool um okay so so that's helpful to think about uh knowledge from instruments and knowledge from artifacts and the distinction between that and perceptual knowledge and testimony um now now um getting into the deep fake apocalypse there's um, there's like three claims I think that that uh, can represent the epistemic apocalypse that that you take on here. That one is that deep fakes have terrible effects on our social epistemic practices. Two deep fakes are historically unprecedented, which we've already kind of talked about, like not not quite. Mm -hmm. And then three, the solution to deep fakes are technological. So um, I would love to spend most of our time in the third one. The solution to deep fakes are technological, but I wonder. Um, Deep fakes will have terrible effects on our social epistemic practices. I think, I think your your argument is that, like again, this is a social concern, and so long as our social practices are still reliable, um, it's okay. Or like, can can you, can you help me think through that? The solution to that one? Yeah, 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 yeah. So the idea is that so one so like <laughs> one thing like i like to do when thinking about like something in epistemology that's made its way into like public discourse is yeah. to like go read a bunch of like op-eds back okay. to back about that same thing so i did that about like fake news a few years ago and i've done it for deepfakes and often people when they're like articulating the threat of deepfakes are just employ employing basic like skeptical arguments so it's like when deepfakes are around or maybe even before deepfakes are around there's like a skeptical possibility, which is mm -hmm. that the video that you're seeing or the recording you're hearing 
isn't a real recording or a real video, but it's like something that's been produced by a malicious hacker who wants to like deceive you. Yeah. Um, and you're like, okay, cool. Like we know about skeptical possibilities. They are a general thing. You can raise that kind of possibility for any, like um, any knowledge claim at all, right? That's one yeah. of the lessons of your first like epistemology course. Yeah. So the, the threat of defects better not just be a generic skeptical hypothesis. It's got to be something specific. So I think the best version of that comes from Brinny's work, where she's got the story about like the way knowledge and videos can be uh, perceptual knowledge um, if there aren't deep fakes, and then it transforms into uh, testimonial knowledge, and that's really bad because it removes the um, epistemic backstop from all our testimonial practices. Yeah. So I'm trying to set up an alternative view. I'm not trying to like definitively knock down the view that she and um, Dan, Kevin, and Taylor like, but like just set up this alternative view where our knowledge based on recordings is all knowledge from artifacts, which involves diffuse social reliance. And then the idea isn't that like everything is totally fine and we should be okay, but that there's like always been problems in that social practice. Like, and we've just got to like have an ongoing practice of negotiating and implementing those norms. Yeah. So I don't want to be like, uh, the options are be really worried or don't be worried at all. It's like bring the problem into a shape that we can kind of make sense of into yeah. a kind of human and like problem about like social practices. Um, so that's kind of like responding to the first part of the epistemic apocalypse narrative that hmm. deepfakes will have terrible effects on our epistemic practices. And then, yeah, some of the examples we've talked about already uh, show us that like faking in photography also, it turns out in videography um, is like really not unprecedented. And there's this yeah. whole history from the real, like from the invention of photography about different kinds of faked photographs and all these interesting like examples from the history of photography that look really similar to like current concerns around deep fakes. Yeah. So like the composer graphs you were talking about earlier in the New York Evening Graphic are often like face swaps and then like... Um, super what would have been seen as like sexualized or like pornographic pictures of women mm -hmm. and like kind of a, a moral panic might arise about those photographs and that's kind of similar to some of the concerns that have arisen about um deep fake pornography uh, and yeah. that's not to belittle uh concerns about deep fake pornography like i take it there are serious problems <laughs> about both the representation of um particular people uh, in non-consensual pornography, but also about the kind of like general propagandistic uh, message of those recordings that represent, I think, quite viscerally that particularly women are um, objects that are, co are completely fungible, like whose faces right. don't, and individuality doesn't matter. You can switch around the face kind of at will, right? So there's, totally. there's a really pernicious kind of objectification going on there, yeah. um, which is also going on in the um, composer graphs to a lesser extent mm. um, so the point is not to be like not worried but to to pull out the concerns and pull them out from being just about deep fakes to a higher level of generality to about like, I think I think that's yeah. so that point is so good because I can see someone using your work and spinning it and being like look see this is why it's not a problem but but instead it's like yeah. no this is this has always been a problem and that's not like uh, an okay thing it's like, you know, yeah. this is a this is a social problem. This is something that we should 
we should have been concerned back then and we should be concerned now. And perhaps since it's a social problem, the solution is a social one like this. It, it's getting more clear. Uh, it's getting past like the, the smoke screen of the, the, the newest the newest technology. And so it needs to be a technological solution. And we need, and if you don't really know how to code, then you can't be part of the conversation. It's like, yes, well, yeah, no, yeah, not, yeah. not quite, you know? Yeah, that's right. So just to <laughs> zoom out in a slightly confusing direction here for a second, I'll hopefully like make sense again. Sure. So, um, I think there's a whole lot of ways that, um, technology companies and like critics of technology who are like useful to technology companies have got a grip on like the news agenda and like the discourse around technology mm. in general sure um whereas like uh, it used to be like we were all techno utopians and like the new iphone was gonna like help you and improve your life in all these kinds of ways um and like that utopianism is like no longer tenable like uh I guess after the tech clash around like 2016 with the like uh, all the stuff about Facebook and private data um, and a bunch of other things. Um, so now the stories that are being told are like kind of techno dystopian, but the problems <laughs> are still problems that can only be solved by the technology companies, right? Mm. So you have to be careful to be like, look, there's this problem um, uh, around like trust and no one trusts the banks anymore, like post 2008. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, how are we going to solve this? Well, look, I've got this really cool technological solution for you. It's called Bitcoin. And there's this distributed ledger and no one needs to trust anyone anymore. You need to trust the technology or like us, the um, technology founders. And we've got this really fancy like new Bitcoin solution to the social problem of like banking um, or more specific problems about getting people in the third world banked or like all these different kinds of issues. Um, so... Part of the thing I'm interested in is like digging into um, what are the questions that are being presented to us as questions that we should be thinking about and questions to be resolved, realizing that like a lot of them are kind of misframed or like useful to technology companies or useful for like people wanting to sell technology products and then trying to like do a bit of like ideology critique on those questions, pull out and realize that like insofar as there are real problems going on in lots of these cases, there are social problems, right? Like the problem of trust in banking isn't a isn't a technological problem it's a yeah. it's a social problem i you just told you just blew my mind on that one with the bitcoin example which is so that was so good i i've always been fascinated by bitcoin because i thought of uh the tropes discussion in metaphysics and i'm like could this actually be like an instantiation of a trope like you know and and non-fungibility and i've always gone that way with the more abstract thinking i i never thought about the social critique or, or the social solution that this is like a, a techno chauvinist answer to a mistrust in the banks and surprise surprise it came around right after uh or, or came prominence maybe right after the banking collapse and it's like wow that dude that's really cool that that really blew my mind just now yeah so there's like <laughs> there's kind of two 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 things wow so it's really this kind of i guess three things that philosophers might be interested in thinking about Bitcoin. This is not something I thought about very much. Like, um, the one thing is like, yeah, as you're right saying, like thinking about the metaphysics of Bitcoin. Um, so one of the guys who was a PhD student at the same time as me in St. Andrews, uh, Martin Lippmann has been some work, doing some work in like the metaphysics of Bitcoin. 
Mm. Another is to like think about um, the yeah the politics of Bitcoin and like whether there's like kind of like hyper libertarian and like individualistic yeah. um, politics which is being proposed. And then there's the thing that I'm interested in, which is um, yeah, what are the questions that are being presented to us as important, and like what kinds of solutions do they? Do they push us towards? Yeah. yeah. So I should say here, so I'm really influenced by the data journalist, Meredith Broussard, okay. who um, had this really cool book called Artificial Unintelligence, hmm. where she introduces this idea of techno chauvinism. And um, what she says is the belief that tech is always a solution. And um, she goes through a bunch of different like examples. So a lot of the book is about like driverless cars and the idea yeah. that like driverless cars are going to be great and amazing and fully autonomous. And they're coming, they're just coming like in the next like couple of years. And then she goes and like tests them out and they're all terrifying. So, so scary because they do all these weird things. They're like janky and don't like, yeah, don't do exactly what you'd expect. Yeah. Um, and then she goes, I mean, this is not so much like how technology looks now, but like in the 2010s, I guess you had this like phase where there was an app for everything. Oh, yeah. And like part of the kind of ideology of um, the people who are proposing those kinds of projects is that like all of the social problems that we face, whether that's like finding a partner who you want to have a relationship with or like getting food delivered to your house or like finding yeah. somewhere to rent or finding a place to go on holiday are problems that can be solved by a little app on your phone that you can just press on and it solves your problem. Mm -hmm. um, and what, some of what Bruce R is doing is arguing that those technology companies, when they're selling their product, are misconstruing social problems. The problem of finding someone you want to be in a romantic relationship with as technological problems, like some kind of weird, like market-based or like matching problem, um, yeah. which doesn't ultimately resolve the underlying social problem. Yeah. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Um... I, f I forgot about that phrase. People used to always say, oh, there's an app for that. And it was I, it was from some company that that's put it out there. And then people kept quoting it. And it's like, you they won. They just won. You just let them win by quoting that phrase to me 11 yeah, times in yeah, that conversation. Yeah. Like, stop doing that. But uh, but now it's brought to my head. So now I have to forget that again. But um, that that's really fascinating because the solution, again, man, this is really opening up stuff in my mind. The solution to your singleness is... It's actually, uh, it's not a you problem. It's a uh, limitation in how many people you're able to see. So maybe there is one for you out there, but you have limited resources and that you only bump into so many people. But now we can bring the whole world to you and your phone. And now you'll be able to find yeah, that one yeah, yeah, yeah. actually compatible with you. Not to say right. that they don't work. I know plenty of people who, who have met friend, uh, their, their significant other mm. on apps. But still, they had to negotiate with a human being, a person. It wasn't a you know perfect match. Yeah, totally right. So, so what's the thing that solves your problem? Like, if you like, not to be not to be like um, uh, super like uh, one partner monogamy is like the solution to everyone. But like, if you do want to have one long term romantic partner, like, what's the thing that solves the problem? Well, it's forming a relationship with one person, right? Yeah. It's not that. Then that's when the problem like it's a farce it's a problem is like solved right yeah. where your desire for a partner has been fulfilled it's not at the moment where like you've matched with someone on like your dating software right um so 
I've also heard I've also heard people yeah. uh, give a critique of those and saying that that it might be it may be harming long term relationships in that you have all these options and you can say, well, well, maybe I just picked the wrong one or there's a bunch more that I can go and choose from. So I don't actually need to be with this one. Um, and that it's kind of again, it's a social problem. It's the same thing as, you know, back when people were in tribes and it's like, well, I'm the main hunter. So maybe I have more to pick from. It's like it's the same thing just in in new packaging and maybe maybe exacerbated because of the technology. Um, you know, maybe it's just more options for yeah. that to, to be drawn out more. Yeah, so I taught a course on the um, the social epistemology of the internet. I guess it must have been in 2019. And as part of the course, I got students to like come up with their their kind of own projects where they would like apply a bunch of the tools we've been thinking about to like a problem on the internet. If they're really open to them, like do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the groups got really interested in uh, yeah dating apps and the kind of problems of dating apps. And they came up with some pretty good evidence <laughs> that, like, um, there was both like a really dangerous and pernicious kind of marketization of people for relationships yeah. um, on dating apps, and also some really weird ways that, like, um, like social stereotypes about different groups of people were like. Put, like very much at the front because you've got so little information but uh, I'm, I'm old and i like i've been in the relationship like since before dating apps were a thing yeah. but like i'm reliably informed uh but <laughs> like on lots of dating apps so like on often i think it's i guess this is more on like gay dating apps but like because you've got very little information that you put forward they'll yeah. be like i want like these stereotypes and not these stereotypes yeah and some of them will be like phobic or like racist stereotypes yeah and so there's there's a kind of weird way that those features of them like those bad stereotypes are pushed to the very front yeah of, like especially probably positions. probably the longer you're on the app and you don't want to you know you don't want to waste your time so you're saying uh, I, i've seen it with ladies where they'll say like if you're under six foot you know need not apply they don't use that phrase but it's like that it's like yeah this is exactly what i'm looking for because i'm sick of wasting my time or whatever and and because i know right. the options are out there i can be so picky because it's not just who who do I have in my town to bump into, it's who do I have in the whole world or whatever, you know, fifty miles or hundred miles radius or however they were. Yeah, and, and we gotta be careful here again, right? So like, um, fatphobic and racist stereotypes aren't like a product of like dating apps. Right. They're not produced by that. Like they're a wider right. social problem, sure. and themselves. But um, the thought would be that dating apps um, by creating certain affordances that put like very little information like to like choose partners based on um by putting that information like right at the front and exacerbate those kinds of yeah. stereotypes and kind of yeah. solidify them in place um so yeah so like we've kind of <laughs> we've yeah. kind of done <laughs> yeah, two we, things now we've like seen yeah. that like the promise of dating apps was to solve problems about like uh like finding partners and uh that that kind of <laughs> that wasn't ever a technological problem that was a that was a social problem and mm -hmm. insofar as there are bad features of dating apps as well those aren't technological problems either they're mm -hmm. social problems which are exacerbated by the design of technological platforms yeah. well that, that's Ah, oh, it's so good. So, so getting getting in deep on, 
uh, or deeper onto uh, techno chauvinism, there's these these three tendencies: uh, techno solutionism, techno optimism, and techno techno fixation. And I think we've probably already been talking about techno optimism versus te- techno determinism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I'm all over the map on this. I I, I de- really depends on the day. Sometimes I'm like a techno determinist. I'm like. Uh, or pessimist, uh, and again, I bet there's I bet there's probably distinctions between those two terms. But um, the opposite of yeah, techno optimist, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Like like determinist and pessimist probably are different camps. But um, yeah. can you can you help the me and the audience out with some some terminology here between techno optimism, chauvinism, uh, uh, determinism, and pessimism? Yeah, so we've got a lot of things like floating around here, and yeah. like. In a way, this is like unhelpful terminology because we've got like techno blahs and like we need to kind of like sift out a little bit what's going on. So part of what I'm doing here is like a bit of unpacking what's going on in Broussard's work. So she says techno chauvinism is just the belief that tech is always a solution. But I think in her discussion, there are really like three different things going on. So one is this like way social problems are transformed into technological problems, which can then get technological solutions um so i've called that techno solutionism uh but it involves it's not primarily about like like a belief that tech is always great it's about the way you set up problems and questions transforming social problems into technological ones Mm -hmm. then there's like the belief that like tech is always the um solution it's like technological systems can do all these fancy things look at this like example where i've like (laughs) got things in a really controlled environment and this thing is happening that um, is really striking so i'm calling that techno optimism mm-hmm. and and then there's this tendency to either ignore or to underplay the role of people in technological systems um so like these are the designers and operators you might be thinking about when you're like thinking about the way that we get knowledge from uh like videos, uh, but also the the folks who are behind machine learning systems, who yeah. coaches up the data, the people who are working on Amazon Mechanical Turk, the human content moderators, the people who um, fix the captions on like videos or produce data that's used in like automated captioning. Um, so all of those those three tendencies, techno-solutionism, techno-optimism, and techno-fixation, I think kind of putting them together gets used to techno-chauvinism, where it's like, for any problem, my techno-chauvinist will like know how to transform into a technological system, know how to sell you, be really optimistic about the technological system, but forget about the role that people are playing, and then like sell you an app that's going to do this thing. Yeah. Um, so there's two things that are kind of intersect. Well, like two other things that are intersecting here. So one is like techno optimism versus techno pessimism. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess we can think about them as like attitudes towards um, whether technological systems are going to be doing good things or doing bad things on the whole. And um, and there really is like it feels like a pendulum that kind of goes too far one way, right? So we've got this kind of techno utopian, yeah. very techno optimist discourse prior to like 2018 where like technology is going to lead to this like amazing future it's just out of reach and that's kind of switched too far back and people are now thinking everything's going to be terrible we're going to get to this dystopia really quickly and there's nothing we can do about it right. which is like an extreme kind of techno pessimism 
oh, I guess a pet techno dystopianism. Oh, there's too many white terms <laughs> going on here. Um, and then techno determinism is fitting into a different set of issues about um, whether the way that we use all of the things that we do mm -hmm. and the social practices that are formed are entirely determined by the design and material reality of a technological system. Yeah. Um, so if you're, um, yeah. So if you're thinking about like social media, sometimes you hear claims like, well, look, we all like share these really outrageous uh, false claims on, on Facebook. And that's just because of the design of the platform. Right. Like that completely determines things. So I think it's helpful to think about the contrary of <laughs> techno determinism. Um, so uh, here, I think I actually talk about this in the footnote of the paper. Mm. I pulled on some work of Quill Cooklers. Okay. Um, so they, in their work on uh, slightly, like surprisingly, on um, geography and the meaning of spaces, like distinguished mm. between like a certain kind of like spatial determinism where like the, the useful meaning of a space is determined by its material features and a kind of like voluntarism where the meaning of a space is just determined by what people are doing or like social practices. And they argue that like neither of those views is right. There's all these complicated interactions between social practices and the like physical features of, of space. Um, yeah. So the way building is designed and then like what kind of social practices, what games or like um, things people do in that space. So mm -hmm. I think the attitude to take um, about technological systems is similarly don't be a techno-determinist, think that what we do is just because of the way a technological system, which itself is a kind of material system, is set up. Uh, and don't think it's like we've got complete choice over how we use the technology either. Would you um, call that techno-volunteerism? Yeah, so I'd call, I'd call that techno-volunteerism, I think, okay. in this footnote. Yeah. Okay, cool. um, So instead, think that there are these complicated, like, techno-social practices, which are partly determined by material features of technology, but also partly by um, the social practices in which those technologies are used. And what we're trying to get to is like good techno-social practices. Um, yeah, so there's like a bunch of things going on here. We've got techno-chauvinism, it's got these three elements. We've got techno-optimism versus techno-pessimism, and then techno-determinism versus techno-voluntarism. Mm -hmm. And I'm arguing for this kind of like I think this is a way the default view that like there are these techno-social practices that have technological elements, also social elements. Um, I, I love it. I love the the golden mean there. I wonder in the mm, techno-social practice view, um, is there still room for like Heidegger's uh, in framing? I guess I hate to to mention Heidegger, but he's so big in the space. Like, does uh, can the human social practices be um, determined, mm, determined is the wrong word to use too, changed and shaped in a, in a necessary way based on a certain tool, like maybe not totally. Right. But, but like, can there be inherent, um, I guess we could just say bad things. Could there be inherent bad things to a certain yeah. technological device that would end up changing our social practices for the worse, even if it's not totally, you know, do, do, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So there might be. Um, yeah. So, so the idea is like, 
Maybe, maybe I can use maybe I can use guns um, because yeah. that's the that's the typical right. Yeah. It's like guns don't kill people, mm-hmm. people kill people. That's like the volunteerist right. one. And then the the other folks are like, no, if there's a gun on the table and you get in an argument, you're gonna reach for the gun. And yeah. in a sense, you know, you can depending on how metaphorical you get, like the gun, you become a gunman uh, because you've mm-hmm. you've taken this for it and it's kind of beckoning to you. And the middle way would be like, well, it's something in between both. But I wonder if 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 I wonder if that's a, um, I like the golden mean, but I'm wondering if that's a stable position because uh, it seems like we may fall one side or the other. Right, 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 right. So you, so you might think there are certain kinds of um, technological systems which um, just have bad effects on technosocial practices, like yeah. they um, tend towards, maybe we want to be careful here, we don't yeah, want to say sure. they lead to necessarily, right. but they tend towards like, uh, technosocial practices with with bad features yeah so yeah. if we frame it that way like yeah cool like i've got i've got no problems with it the thing that we want to be careful about is this tendency to think that it's like um fully determined so yes. like as soon as you've got um the the technology like going on then the bad social consequences are going to happen um yes. yeah Tend like towards. That's great. That's great. That's good terminology. That's good distinction. Instead of yeah. lead to, tend towards. Yeah, you get some probability can, in there, and yeah, yeah. I mean, you can just imagine like kind of wild hypothetical situations where, like, um, uh, like I'm not. I'm a pacifist. Like, I'm not. I'm not like pro guns, but like, um, you can imagine a situation where there are like lots of lots of firearms like around, but like. We have these really strong social practices against like uh ever using them and for that reason like no one gets shot um that's not a realistic situation like given the way people are and the way like human social conflict plays out yeah. um that's not plausible but that is a possible situation so we need to be careful and like say yeah this kind of technology will tend towards producing a, a technological social practice with bad consequences yeah. Yeah, you don't want to invite the the easy counter example by making too strong of a claim. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah philosophy yeah, yeah. one on one. That's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and just to like loop way back to, I think this is why it's helpful when thinking about anything in the epistemology of technology or like the ethics of AI or like the ethics of technology to be thinking about like general questions in um, the philosophy of technology because it's really tempting to like fall into this kind of like techno determinist. Uh, line where it's like the technology itself is the problem it mm-hmm. will lead to these kinds of problems in the future and this is going to be a bad thing there's a kind of like model for ethics of ai papers where it's like this kind of technology is coming over the horizon it's going to arrive in five years it will have these bad features and these good features yeah and it's like well look it's really complicated <laughs> like it's going to depend on like a bunch of like social practices and um you need to think about how the social practices will interact with the technology yeah that's so helpful i'm gonna i'm gonna listen back on this i need to listen back on this a lot but that's such a good um that's such a good tool to have in your in your head when you're reading this stuff and and you're you're pretty brave for reading so many uh periodicals about uh deep fakes and stuff like that like any i'm trying to i'm trying to become an expert in the philosophy of ai and it's so tough reading these journalists you know because so many of them are just like do you know that it, that this thing passed the Turing test, and that means that it's conscious? Right. And you're like, what? Yeah, Wait, yeah, yeah. hold on, what? Um, but, but yeah, wading through, and and then even going to the, 
the uh, uh, philosophy papers, if you're able to have this kind of framework and say this isn't the necessary framework that, that fits everything, but saying like this is a good guide to thinking about these claims. And yes, right. there is a kind of uh, a pattern that comes out where they say it's five years away and and being able to yeah. see that yeah, 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 yeah. can instead of just uh, writing someone off, it, it can be a shorthand for helping you think clearly about it and not being too drawn in to the moment, but saying, hey, let's think through this more clearly. Yeah, I think what's going on is that like there is a bit of a weird moment where it feels like lots of people think that there's like a real need, both people hiring people for jobs, but also people like deciding what to work on next for this thing, ethics of AI, thinking about the ethics of these AI systems, which are either have arrived or are going to arrive like, um, yeah, whatever. Um, and a lot of those folk are under pressure to put out work quickly. Uh, mm. And one thing that's happened is that like, there isn't enough like <laughs> distributed knowledge about like either the philosophy of technology and these debates that have been going on for years and years, like right. in philosophy of technology courses, I think more in like Europe, the continental Europe than um, in the UK and the US, where it's like, we've got this tradition of philosophy of technology where like we read Heidegger first and then think about the meaning of technology, go through that. So people aren't based on that. And they're yeah. also not like talking to science and technology studies people yeah. and like the critical work that's being done based in uh, science and technology studies. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm thinking about people like, um, uh, let me look at um, Sophia Noble and like Ruha Benjamin um, and like critical figures on technology that are basing their intellectual work in science and technology studies um, where they're not just paying attention to the features of the technological system, but also to the kind of like wider social practices which are being um perpetuated or like solidified or like changed and made more um problematic by technological systems yeah. um so i think kind of either one of those feels like a more productive way of trying to do philosophy of technology um rather than this model which is of course a bit caricatured like no one's yeah maybe doing justice right. of thinking through like this technology is coming, let's count up its like good and bad features, which it will have on our social practices, um, which feels to be more of like a kind of applied ethics uh, model. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think even taking it case by case, because uh, in in defense of the folks that, uh, you know, you just you just defended yourself saying, you know, it's a bit caricatured, um, they, they may say, well, this, the same thing is true of, of the, uh, the feminist philosophers. Um, they, they could also come up with a pattern and say, this is how it's going to harm this group of, of people. And, and it's like, yeah, well, yeah. if we all just stop doing that and we take it case by case and, and then we take each paper case by case, then yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll be better for all of us if, if we're doing that kind yeah, of work. Instead it, of and it's not like a, it's not like I'm trying to be like stop doing ethics of AI or anything. Right, right, right. Totally. Um, yeah. I mean, there's like I uh, end up getting a like rep for being like stop doing this thing, like scold or like stop talking about fake news or whatever. And <laughs> yeah. It's just like there's this better thing we can be doing, mm -hmm. which is um, to not just be thinking about like a form of technology and the effects which it will have definitely because we can see its effects on 
like by just looking at the features of the technological system. Instead, think about techno-social systems. Yeah. Um, think about the social practices that we have. Look at empirical literature, like interdisciplinary uh, empirical literature on the way that um, social practices interact with technological systems and the good and bad features of that. Um, and then use a wider range of critical tools, including tools from like feminist theorists and like the uh, black feminist tradition and like social and political philosophy more broadly. And that feels like a kind of more productive um, project for me. So like this comes up in epistemology. So you're like, the, <laughs> there's this like little, little routines people sometimes go through where they're like, um, look, this feature of a social media platform so like the like button on Facebook or like all these range of emoji has this bad effect. It causes people to be very really emotional or have emotional reactions. And mm. then that like undermines the, or like decreases the quality of testimony on social media. And that's a bad thing. And it's like, okay, cool. That's one thing you can do, but there's also so much empirical literature um, on the social practices that arise on social media platforms. Um, and there's loads of interesting things to be said about those social practices where it's not just like uh how are people reacting to different messages like what are people trying to do what are their like ways of forming their identities what are their ways of like coming up with counter publics or like finding like-minded communities um yeah. online if you go and look at that empirical literature um in internet studies then a different range of kind of evaluative questions comes up mm -hmm. um and you you just get a more interesting kind of um, evaluation of what's going on on the internet. Yeah. So like I should say the the kind of book which I think is taking the the, the good strategy here of like engaging with interdisciplinary scholars um, is Karen Frost Arnold's uh, new book Who Should We Be uh, Online, uh, mm. which is really great at this. It's like she's gone and like dived into that literature and the questions that she's come back with are really informed by what like internet studies folk are interested in studying on the internet that's awesome yeah oh man there's so there's so much going on that's so good um i think a, a, my concern so i'm still a student and i totally agree with you and and even grabbing tools from different sub fields in philosophy um even people okay. you you may disagree with or you may have a bias against like but if they have, if they have some good tools maybe you can you know broaden your own perspective by reading them as well maybe that's a good thing but then interdisciplinary yeah. is a whole nother thing and um it can be a bit overwhelming at times um totally. i think yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah do, do you feel that as well yeah yeah and i i think that was part of why i was trying to say that there's lots of pressures on people in this field to like turn stuff out really quickly yeah. Um, because I think this kind of interdisciplinary work is really slow, like, because yeah. you have to, like, understand why people are saying something in the different field, like, what their questions are, what their methodologies are, and it yeah. just slows you down a lot. Big um, time. Yeah. Like, 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 like years types. So I'm thinking of what we owe the future, uh, McCaskill, and, um, you know, think, yeah. think what you want about the book, but I think they were saying, like, 10 years to write the book or five years or something, mm -hmm. like, multiple years. And in a space like techno philosophy or the philosophy of technology, that's forever. Like if you try to write a book on yeah, AI yeah, yeah, and it yeah, took yeah, you yeah, three yeah. years to write it, AI is right. different now. And and it's it is and it isn't, right? It depends it's still the same stories going on and uh yeah. you know, GoFi versus connectionism, but but still the specifics right. have changed so much. So 
I understand. And it's just, for me, I'm like, this is really tough stuff. It's really tough because I understand why you'd want to pump it out. But I also get that mm-hmm. if you want to do good work, it needs to be in, interdisciplinary. And if you want to do that kind of good work, it takes a very long time to understand. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Right, right, right. And maybe the solution is just like having different kinds of projects going on at the same time. Yeah. So like, um, I'm trying to think about like other fields that have this kind of structure. Yeah. So maybe, so maybe think about like, um, climate scientists. So people who build complicated physics models Mm. of, um, like not the weather, but of the climate and like, there's just different, there's different projects going on there. So one is like, how are we going to build better models for doing everything? How are we going to build different models for like, uh, doing like deep geological time? And then how are we going to like forecast a little bit in the time, a little bit forwards, um, to see what the kinds of, uh, social and political and economic effects of climate change would be over the short term. And maybe there's a kind of like analogous, like multi-methods thing that's worth thinking about where um, there's space both for like the very general kinds of philosophy of technology inquiry where you're thinking about like, yeah, how should we, how should we understand um, techno-volunteerism and techno-determinism? Like what's the right kind of like position to take on how the meaning of a um, technological system is determined? And then different kinds of like the, the metaphor has given me more resources than I thought it was going to do but like thinking about the way that um historical problems to do with technology have like connections to current problems and then also a kind of like reactive or like responsive um kind of philosophy of technology is interested in like this problem has come up cool what can we do about it without thinking that that like last thing is the only thing that we want to do. Yeah. Similarly, like in the climate change case, like it's really important to have predictions for um, where the effects of climate change are going to be the worst and like what kinds of mitigation are going to be most um, effective. But we can't do any of that unless we have like really effective models which can work at a bunch of different scales. Yeah. This has been so good. I, I wanna I wanna wrap it up with um, I'm. I used to cringe when I would think of calling myself an abstract thinker because I prioritize that type of thinking. And so to call myself that would be like boastful. But then I'm realizing more and more for my audience that like so many people are practical and they don't think that abstract thinking is super cool. And so I think I can call myself that and just be descriptive now without trying to like boast because it's just a, a just who I am. I like to think abstract. I love that stuff. But I, for the sake of my audience, I want to leave them with some practical steps um and and this is really hard because so much of this is analysis and just getting clear on what we mean and so then people are like well what do you want me to do and it's like no i want you to think i don't i don't want you just to go and act on what i've said i want you to think about it too Mm -hmm. but so um so in 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 trying to tie this back up and close the loop deep fakes um may have terrible effects on our social epistemic practices but it's a it's a social thing and we need to shore up our social institutions and and maybe that's where the answers will lie Um, yeah and it's it's boring stuff it's like the the solution to like inaccurate representations of the world isn't like particular solution for deepfakes it's like having better media systems in general Um, and so like 
Um, there's like <laughs> limited things that we can do as an individual, as individuals. Like there are some ways that one can like um, uh, fund like independent media, which is reliable. Um, and reliability here is both responding to like uh, are people saying things that are true and like both and also what topics yeah um, people are covering. Um, oh, that's but, good. Yeah, that's a really good point. The topics as well. Yeah, I'm so stifled based on who's promoting or who's sponsoring. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but partly some of those problems about the media system in general, um, which has lots of other problems, like besides deepfakes, uh, require like systemic um, solutions as well. So like um, better public funding for media would, it's kind of the end point to, to get towards. Um, so there's a bunch of <laughs> things like people who like the epistemic apocalypse think that it's going to happen. Say, so they say things like it's important to uh, be aware of deep fakes and kind of know what they look like. Um, and like, I think those are good things to have as well, right? It's like uh, interesting, like little exercise to do to go and look on YouTube or look on Reddit um, to see what actual deep fakes look like that aren't produced by like a really fancy production studio working together with a skilled impersonator. So the, the um, Tom Cruise example we talked about at the top, turns out the guy that um, is being videoed in that is a Tom Cruise impersonator who looks just like Tom Cruise. He looks already. just like him. Yeah, he looks really much so like him. Yeah. So once you realize that, it's like, oh, it's not that impressive. But like, yeah. so it's, it's interesting to look at those videos and like see some of the interesting little tells. So lots of them are just very poorly animated or the back of the screen will be pixelated. At a different resolution to the face those are interesting things to like pay attention to also like um knowing what some like fact checking websites are that might debunk and like do the boring old school journalism of like did this really happen or not and um, having like a little store of those those are all good things to yeah. have as like a consumer of um at the media but the, the ultimate thing to be to be thinking about it is like um yeah um what does reliable news media look like and um, how can we produce that as a collective achievement? Do you, do you think, do you think people should be writing their senators promoting uh, watermarks, watermark laws or anything on, on videos? Is, is that a social, is that a social solution or is that more of a tech solution? Because you're, you're yeah. saying I want watermarks, you know, I want, is that a tech thing or is that a social thing? I mean, I'd have to think about like the way that's implemented. Um, I think in a way we kind of have that already, right? Uh, well, that's a bit tricky, right? So um, when you see a video on social media or on a news website, um, normally you do, or you should be paying attention to who's sharing the video mm -hmm. and like, what kind of work they might have done. So if it's just a, a, a random person you've never heard of, probably there's some reasons to not trust that this video is like out of context, not that the video has been presented within its right context and with the right information about what's being represented. Whereas if it's being shared by like a really reputable um, like newspaper or an independent journalist who's got a good rep, um, that's kind of already functioning a little bit like a, like a watermark. And okay. that's a much more distributed system, right? You don't need like one centralized authority to um, kind of have that kind of stamp of approval on like who can put out videos. Um, yeah. So I think there are some reasons to 
be skeptical about centralized authorities. And then we've already got something a bit like that, which is reliable journalists. Um, yeah. 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 We need more of them, basically. Yeah. Yeah. That's really I mean, good. There, there is there is stuff going through the US um, uh, legal system at the moment, um, legislation against um, uh, deep fake which I think might well like ameliorate some of the bad effects of that. Like, and that's an interesting thing to look into like um but uh yeah i'm not super convinced by um watermarks or like yeah i mean using the blockchain or something to yeah, like, yeah. verify yeah. Uh, videos yeah i'm with you on that well josh this has been huge man thank thank thanks for all your time uh thanks for your work and um if somebody wanted to read this paper and you, you did send me a video i'm not sending that around or anything but but is that going to be a series that, that people can go in and buy and watch? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's coming out. Um, so there's two things. So um, my website is Joshua Hapgood Coots. If you um, copy and paste it from the like video description, like that's easy to yeah. find. One of the perks of having a distinctive name. Um, and if you click through either to papers on my website or to fill papers, there's a like open access version of the paper. There's also various um, kind of like shorter versions of the paper that I've written up for various blogs in different places. Uh, and there's a, there's a kind of video essay of like 20 minutes or so that should be coming out in the next few weeks, um, which I'll link through my website, um, but will be coming out on the new work in philosophy uh, substack. Awesome. That sounds so good. Well, I'll put all the links to that stuff in the description and then uh, if this comes out before that video, I will go back later and and add that in. So, Perfect. folks, be looking in the description or find you know follow the links all the way through. Uh, Josh, this has been really really fun. Thanks again for all your time. Right, thanks, Parker. Thanks, thanks, uh, audience sticking around for listening. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.